With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. We are back from our little assignment. And this is a double Friday follow-up for you for season 12, episode 8 and 9, where we talked about the autopsies and we talked to Jim Clemente a little bit. In episode 8, we broke down the autopsies of John, Vicky, and Becky. We also heard Bob's profile of the case. And then in episode 9, we heard Jim's opening conversation with Bob about his profile, which we're going to hear more about coming up. This week, Bob and I also did a little experiment that we're going to talk about. I know we have a ton of questions. I'm joined with Bob and Janet, and we're going to get to all your questions right after this break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Alrighty, uh, Zach, thank you for that wonderful intro. I don't know if Kelly will capture the bloopers, but uh, that 30-second intro you just heard took 17 minutes for Zach to get out. <laughs> that was a rough Rude. one. Uh, so before we get into, we've got, as Zach said, we had two episodes here, so we've got questions from both of those, tons of stuff to talk about. Of course, I've had two more hours of gym conversation rattling through my brain that you guys haven't even heard yet. Um, but real quick, I want to touch on uh, man, I'm super impressed with the interest in this. We told you a couple weeks ago that we were talking about getting a merch line going and to start to sell some stuff. Ended up designing a a t-shirt for the West Memphis 3 case. It says, uh, test the effing evidence. Of the, there's like censored in the middle uh, with West Memphis 3 logo is, or West Memphis 3 is kind of like shadowed behind it. That's the design I went with. I thought it'd be a great shirt for people to have to show support both in person on June 23rd, uh, during the hearing for the, the DNA testing and also online. And we see that we, we've got like the free Adnan Fridays where everybody posts pictures in their free Adnan stuff. I would love to see people 
uh, all over the world wearing these shirts and posting with hashtag test the evidence, um, you know, on June 23rd, the day of the, the hearing. So anyway, we put those shirts up, decided with these are first, the way we're going to do merch now, uh, if you go now on our website, truthandjusticepod.com, you can click the shop button or you can go truthandjusticepod.com slash shop. Uh, that takes you into our merch store. The way we're doing it so we don't have to deal with inventory and all that is every time we come up with a new shirt, we're going to do a pre-sale for like two weeks. You will be able to put your orders in and then I send those off to Betsy, our shirt maker, who will then build, build the shirts and then ship them out to everyone. Uh, so the, for this first one, uh, right now, all we have up, we have a woman's cut and a unisex cut. Uh, they're black shirts with gray print on them. They're silk screen. They're very high quality. They're like tri-blend shirts. Um, they are $24.99, I believe, is what they're on the, the site for. And for these, I decided I'm donating 100% of the profits from those shirts to Damien's Defense Fund, um, which I got, got that idea because about the time we were getting the shirts uh, up and running um, and getting the uh, Katie Ross, our website designer, was getting our website ready and building all that out for it. Damien's wife, Lori, reached out to me and said, you know, they just they, they want to bring in a an expert witness from somebody that so you saw her on my TV show, Susanna Ryan from Pure Gold Forensics, who does MVAC testing to testify at the hearing. Uh, and of course, there's a big expense for that. They've got a lot of attorneys that are working uh, pro bono or next to nothing for them, but they have to pay their expert witnesses. I told her it will not be a problem for us to raise the money to do that. I wanted to hold off on doing like a crowdfunding site, like a GoFundMe, because I want to save that for when, if we get approval to test the DNA, to put that up and get all the money in for that. So instead, decided we'll sell these t-shirts and just give them all the profits from that. It's been like three days, four days. I just All I did was put it out on social media, and we've sold a ton of them. We've already hit the, the first goal, which is to pay for Susanna Ryan um, with the amount, the amount of shirts that we've sold. Now, I'm finally announcing it on the show. You have until June 3rd, next Friday, to put your order in. I think they're really cool-looking shirts. And again, all the money is still, I'm donating it. to. So that'll roll into um, other defense things they're doing if we don't get approval for testing. Uh, If we get approval for testing, anything over and above what they need for this hearing is going towards the testing. So we're already starting to cut into that goal a little bit. Uh, I'm pretty confident that we will get to test some evidence from this. So. Uh, you have till June 3rd, and we may cut that off sooner because I don't think our T-shirt maker was thinking that we were going to have 300, and I think right now we've sold like 370 shirts. That's a lot, and she has promised to get the shirts in everybody's hands before June 23rd. Okay. So since we've already sold so many after this show airs on Friday and you guys kind of have the weekend, I may cut ordering off on Monday so that I can get the orders out to her and we can start the process of making and shipping them. Don't wait if you're thinking about uh, getting one of those shirts. And can you just reiterate again where people go to get it? Yeah, so you just go, to, you just go right to our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Uh, there's a shop button on the top of the page that you can click that'll take you to our, our shop or truthandjusticepod.com slash shop. Janet has a look on her face as Don't though, do it on your phone because that is not an option. Is there a little menu button, like three lines up at the top? There is. It says home, cases and docs, videos, transcripts, and contact. There is no shop button. Hmm, that's a problem. So go to the website on a computer or go to yeah, social media. on a computer or, and I will mention that to Katie, uh, yeah, or go to any of my socials or the Truth and Justice um, socials and there's links put up in all those to awesome. link to it. Yeah, that's a... Right. Yeah, because it's definitely on the computer because I saw it on the computer. There's a shop button. But I'll make sure she Got adds it. that to the uh, to the mobile. Great. 
Yeah, and then so and after this one is is very specific cause. The rest of the shirts will do like we'll do, my plan is to do a new shirt every month as long as we get enough interest for people to to buy them. And you know, typically the, you know the the funds from that will just go into helping support our mission here. Uh, unless we have like this where it's something didn't feel right to me when we have something very specific that we're you know that we're trying to support and fund right now, and the shirt is very specific to that mission that I thought the money should go to that. So all of it is going it. there. So you can do that again. You can either, what happens, Janet, if you type in truth and justice slash shop, does that work? I think that, I think that works. That works. Okay. So just yeah. not, there's just not a button on the website yeah. on the phone. Right. Okay. So uh, get your shirt orders in again. If you're thinking about it, do it by this weekend, because if we cross four or 500 shirts, over the weekend, then I'm probably going to pull the plug because I don't know that we'll be able to get them out in time if we go much further past that. And also to all you patrons, I just sent out a ton of shirts and hats for people we owed from from Patreon. So be on the lookout for those. Make sure you post those when you get them. And with that, let's get into our content. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, Zach, you had a list of a couple things. We just did an experiment right before we, we came in here. Maybe we talk about that first. Yeah. I You know, this week, well, since you've been gone, and it's actually two episodes ago now, the autopsy. We talked about John's wounds and, and the wadding from the shotgun mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. So I had a lot of questions because, as a lot of longtime listeners know, I, I've, I was a competitive shooter, a high-end competitive shooter, shot nationally. I actually technically shot professionally for a while. Shot a lot of rounds pre-COVID when you can actually afford it. But uh, I had some questions about it because I didn't feel necessarily that, that spread was accurate. However, mm-hmm. the wadding didn't surprise me that it was in him. Mm-hmm. So you and I today, this morning, actually went out and did a few little experiments just to see what a spread would look like on a shotgun shooting number eight shell. Right. Uh, yeah, because it was the spread didn't make. We were trying to get an idea of how far away you would need to be uh, with different. For those who don't know, on a shotgun, there's different choke tubes that you can screw into the end that that adjust how wide the pattern of the BBs come out. And so we ended up, we, we paced off five steps, mm-hmm. which is 15 feet, five yards, basically like five steps away from somebody looking at the map that seemed to be if somebody would like came in the back door and was standing around where the area where Vicky was shot and where John ended up, it looks to be about 15 feet away. So we tried that. And at first we tried it with a full choke and the spread was only four inches, four or five inches. Yeah, it was very, very small. Um, and then we went down to what's called a cylinder choke, which is very little choke at all with number eight shot. Which is a very common choke for shotguns. Right. Um, yeah, and usually like a smoothbore shotgun that doesn't have interchangeable chokes will be just built in a cylinder choke. And so, and shockingly, we got the exact result, we think, looking at the, the x-ray photos from the case files as where the shot was at. That seems to be about right with just a stand. So we 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 speculated maybe a sawed off shotgun. Um, I have full as the as the gun that I that I hunt birds with, with bird shot in it, with a cylinder choke, and we just put a piece of paper up on a tree and hit it, and the spread was about exactly what we saw in John. And surprisingly to me, the wadding did we can't say if it would penetrate flesh. We need to use like a pumpkin or something for that. Mm-hmm. But the the wadding came out very. As a matter of fact, hit the tree so hard ricocheted back the the plastic rubber wadding or plastic wadding uh-huh. shot back and 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 hit behind us um so i think it would definitely would have penetrated into the skin from that distance oh i i definitely think so and, and you could see even when you shot the target from a, a little bit further you could see that there's a secondary hole there's a main hole where the the pellets hit there's a secondary hole where the wadding where the hit. wadding fired through it and i mean it i i definitely think it would penetrate i don't think that's 
very unlikely at all. Yeah. I'm not totally set on the whole sawed off shotgun. I don't I don't think many people have those. As many people they talk about sawed off shotguns and crimes yeah. so often. They're very few floating around. They're extremely illegal, which doesn't mean I mean, I know this person's committing a crime, but I don't feel like that that's a, a different criminal that has a sawed off shotgun. That's not a Somebody like this. I just don't see it one bit. No, and I, and that was one of the reasons we wanted to do the experiment was to see did it need – because I speculated that whoever the unsub was that was using the shotgun likely was either a bird hunter or someone who did sport shooting, which you wouldn't do obviously with a sawed-off shotgun. So I wanted to see from that distance with a standard the – t- the type of gun I have, which is an over-under 12-gauge shotgun, mm-hmm. is the type you would use to hunt bird or to shoot trap or skeet with. And with that normal gun with a normal choke in it with number eight shot, it it made the pattern that we see on John. So I, I don't think that it, so it kind of reinforces for me my thought that whoever mm-hmm. did this probably does shoot, you know, whether whether it's sporting clays or or bird hunts. And, and I honestly, you know, you, you kind of mentioned the episode about it, a shotgun not being fatal, you know, or. People wouldn't necessarily assume it's fatal because, like Dick Cheney shot, right? He actually shot a different uh, attorney from Texas, uh-huh. which is what it was. But at that distance, it's extremely fatal. And actually, yeah. there are a lot of people that that talk about in the self defense world. The best home self defense gun is a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to neutralize anybody that you need to neutralize, but it also right. doesn't have the energy to travel outside of your home, right? So that that's a yeah. big thing. So. I, a lot of people do use shotguns for this purpose. Yeah, I was actually I, surprised at how devastating the load was from that distance. Yes, yeah. because if you go back thirty yards and shoot somebody with birdshot, I don't think it would be. Well, fatal. so that's one thing I wanted to bring up was you talked about Cheney and how he shot this guy. The guy's name was Harry Whittington. Mm-hmm. He he was shot with a twenty-eight gauge shotgun, which is actually a smaller, it's less powerful shotgun. Right at thirty yards. And it penetrated all the way to his heart. He actually had a heart attack because it penetrated to his heart. It was like one pellet got into yes. his bloodstream and into his heart. Yes. But the, but I was reading about that. The shot itself didn't penetrate into his heart. It like got into a vein and went into his heart. It, into an artery is what they said. Yeah. Because yeah. a vein's not going to travel that. But uh, yeah. But I mean, it's that. That's a long distance. That's quite a bit further than what we shot at. Right. You know what I mean? And it it collapsed along. It did a lot of damage to him. He's lucky to be alive. Yeah. As a matter of fact, sorry, uh, we we also one of the other experiments we did is I, to get an idea of the impact. Uh, we hung a towel from a branch out in in the yard. I thought a towel at five yards it'll have some give to it mm-hmm. to see how that. And now that one we did with it was was uh, like a modified or a yeah. full choke, but it blew a, the, the spread was tight enough. It actually blew a hole about two inches wide through the through the towel, ripped even with it having some give, and the wadding went right through it. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely think that, yeah, I, I've sort of changed my opinion on how deadly that shot could be from such a close range. I'm really glad that you guys did that experiment, and I'm glad that you brought it up and sort of put it in context, because that was something that I still kind of walked away with after both episodes, was this idea of like, well, how sophisticated is it to have that bird shot and to take a chance with mm-hmm. something that wouldn't be that fatal? So I'm really glad that that you brought that up and clarified, because that definitely helps me better understand why you would make the decision to use it because i kept thinking why would you use that that's such a risk maybe he wasn't going to die from it 
you know, that seems like an unsophisticated choice. You know, sophistication is a, a term we're going to be talking about a lot in today's follow up. So right. this is very helpful. And I think and I want to do more experiments if I can find like a pumpkin or something um, that has more like a fleshy material to it, because I would be venture a guess. Now, this is not how John was shot because of the spread. He was he was probably back about 15 feet. But I would venture a guess if you get inside of 10 feet, certainly inside of 5 feet, that the the grouping of the shells would be so tight that it would probably blow completely through yeah, the other agree. side mm-hmm. because they wouldn't have time to spread out and lose their energy. They would be tight and blow right through it. And, and Josh brought up a good point in the, the Facebook Live about the barrel length. There are tactical versions that have an 18-inch barrel, which is the, the shortest legal length. Right. Which is quite a bit shorter than what we shot with today. Yeah, I think that's a 22-inch barrel. So, I mean, that, that would change it a as well, mm-hmm. you know, a, a shorter barrel, you're going to have a larger spread by the time it gets there. I mean, it's, yeah, but I think we pretty much and we can move on from this, but I, I think we pretty much got the pattern that we needed. I agree from the from the experiment that we were that we did. Right. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, okay, so moving into, I just want to get this first question. I don't want to say out of the way because I don't mean any disrespect to Jared who asked it, but um, you'll see it's kind of a clarifying crime overall question about fire. Uh, Jared says, I don't know much about the subject, but what if the fires had nothing to do with a cover up and the perp was a pyromaniac? What are the behaviors of a pyro turned murderer? It feels like that's a little outside the scope of some of the other stuff we're going to talk about. So I wanted to kind of take care of that first. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, though. And and we don't see evidence of that. Normally, you would see bigger fire. Like so, you know, one of the things that, that to me indicated sophistication was the careful use of accelerant just in two locations away from the bodies to where, you know, I think the hope might have been that if they find two bodies in the fire, they might check for accelerant around that area and not find any because it was in the other part of the house. Um, I think you'd find a lot more accelerant used. And then another thing you find is people that are pyromaniacs like that, typically they want to watch their work. They would have been, which is possible, I guess, in this case, they could have been standing out in the desert somewhere or something watching. Um, but in, in my experience, I've, I've had several cases where we had arson and we caught the person and found that the person was in, we're trained as firefighters. When we first respond to a scene, look for people that look out of place. And we've caught people because it's a fire at three o'clock in the morning, this raging fire. And the neighbors are all coming out in their pajamas and robes. And, and then there'll be like one person standing in the crowd. That's like, fully dressed, wearing boots, laced up, you know, look like they're put together. And, and turns out that ended up being the person who started the fire and they were, you know, they were, they kind of fell into the crowd because they wanted to watch their work. So we just, 
it's not to say it's not possible, but we don't see any indication of that here. And we also have a very specific use of the two fires uh, in that they were, you know, they were effective in covering up evidence. It's interesting that it would be to have to be two people doing that together, too, although maybe that's common. Right. Um, OK, great. Great question, Jared. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Vicky and John sort of leaning more into the autopsy episode on this. Uh, Mary asks, Mary Louise, I should say, asks, did the burn body expert do an estimated burn time of Vicky and John? No, she didn't because there was too much damage, too many unknown variables because you, know, you have the house, the house is collapsing. So you have what we call drop down. So you have, you know, there may be a fire above and then something that's on fire drops down low. Uh, it was hours and hours that they were in there from what, you know, Zach, I, I let Zach go through the forensic report with me today. Uh, and you see like after, after 30 minutes. Yeah. It, it's, it's alarming how fast a, a person would burn. Like yeah. That. After like 30 minutes, the body's kind of almost unrecognizable. So in the fact that they weren't found until the middle of the night and then the next morning, it's just that there's, there's too much there to pinpoint. Whereas Becky's was in a very controlled environment. She was burned almost in the same type of environment that they do their test burns in. So it was easy to track and she was extinguished quickly enough that it didn't get to the point where there, there's kind of like this termination point where once you burn up this badly, then it could be anywhere from an hour to 10 hours, you know, if the, you know, depending on how hot it was, she didn't get to that point. The, 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 the fire was still in its growth stages when it was extinguished, which allowed the time to be pinpointed. I want to talk about Vicky a little bit for a minute. We just talked about John a lot. Uh-huh. I want to talk about Vicky for a minute in her autopsy. And you kind of talked about it with Jim as well. We talked about the non through and through shot right. to her head, you know, less of the burning, the non through and through shot to her head. That uh, is absolutely perplexing to me. I know he said that he's seen it before in different cases, but I have a very hard time with that. I mean, I obviously it's there, but I have a right. very hard time with that. It, it, when he mentioned it, I remembered some case studies that I've read in the past uh, where someone has, uh, in an attempted suicide, mm-hmm. have literally shot themselves in the head in the travel, or even not even suicide, just when somebody shot in the head, where a round would like hit and then literally like travel around the skull between wow. the skin and the skull and mm-hmm. come out the other side. So when he mentioned that, I was like, oh, I guess that is true. So I guess it's not uncommon. I've shot deer where I've had a similar thing happen. Remember a couple of years ago, I talked to you about one. It was weird when yeah. I was skinning the deer that the round had gone in one side. And it was between the rib cage and the skin on the other side. It didn't come out the other side. So yeah, it's it, it, it's an anomaly for sure. We maybe should have put a graphic uh, disclaimer on this episode. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Sorry, sorry, everybody. Still can, still can. Um, yeah. I mean, moving forward, obviously, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is very graphic today. So just be aware of what what this conversation is going to be. Yeah. With that, with that being said, I know there was something you mentioned, you've been hounding me about for weeks that before we get back into these questions, Shannon, that you wanted to ask about. There is. So what a lot of people don't know is Bob has a board up in the office. He, we likely call it the murder board, but it, I mean, it's like you see in TV shows. It's the crime scene board. That's got all the, it's got all the pictures posted on it and everything, all the little wires and colors and all that stuff connecting each other. And there is a picture of, Becky's body, which I, I'm one of the few that get to see this because I'm here in the office every day. There is a pink substance kind of around her mouth and nasal cavity where, I mean, her the rest of her body is charred, but there right. is a, a pink substance or I, I don't know what it is. I, and I've been dying to know what it is. I've, I've asked you multiple times and you're like, hold on, bring that up when this episode comes up. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it's a little perplexing to me. So it's it's basically like foamy frothiness. 
that has come out of her nose and mouth. And it caught my attention right away because to me, that was an indicator that she would have been alive when she was killed. So what, what happens is, and actually I, I did before I read the autopsies and I just heard that they said, oh, she was dead before she was killed. I saw that and I dug out, I have Warner Spitz's burned. I think you mean burned. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, um, okay. I have Warner Spitz's book out looking through because there's, there's photos almost identical to this in the book. And it's a little perplexing to me because what that's caused from, it starts with edema, which is, so when you have, you know, due to the fire, uh, you have inflammation that happens within the airway, which causes your body to, it causes fluid. So fluid will come out as a reaction your body has to, you know, superheated gases burning in the airway. And then you have, it's a closed system, right? So you have your lungs that have one way out, which is up out your nose and mouth as the lungs heat up and you have this fluid in the lungs, it will cause that to, for lack of a better term, boil and then come out those airways. And that's what it looks like to me. So my thought was she had to have, her heart had to have still been beating, maybe not, you know, probably unconscious and not, but her heart had to have still been beating in order for her body to react to create the edema in order for it to boil and froth out of her airways. But then I, so that's what it looks like to me. Uh, I'm certainly not a, uh, an expert in the field, but then when I read the autopsy, it says, now it says she has carbohemoglobin. There, there's, there's, they all have a small, and you'll see the autopsies are on the website, a small trace amount of basically from breathing smoke in their bloodstream. But it's it's considered to be such a trace, such a tiny amount that it is it's not believed that they were alive when that happened. I, just, I guess it goes through osmosis. I don't know how that mm. gets in their bloodstream. But then the autopsy says her trachea and her esophagus were completely unremarkable. There's no indication there's any and and the airways are unremarkable with no signs of charring. So I I'm perplexed by it. Because it looks to me like there's indicators that she her heart was still beating when the fire happened. But according to the ME report, that's not the case. Does it address what the fluid is at all? No, but uh, actually someone, uh, Emmett, in uh, the YouTube chat just made a really good point I hadn't thought about. He said the edema could be due to a gunshot wound in the lungs too. And that is a really good point. Uh, I'm thinking this through on the fly as I just a great point, Emmett. A, gu- nice a gunshot wound or a stab wound to the lung obviously would cause fluid in the lungs and then you die and then the heat causes it to boil out of that's a really that's actually a great point and now that you say that i think that that brings the two elements together great job emmett nice right now immediately in the youtube chat that's amazing yep, leans us into the idea that she was either stabbed or or shot in the in the lungs which would have to be from what we saw in the autopsy photos it would have to be her left lung because that's where the ribs are damage enough that something could have happened there and you wouldn't be able to see yeah there, there's quite a chunk of her missing from that spot i mean to be graphic i mean there's quite quite an area where she very easily could have been shot or stabbed and we would have no idea because it's right. completely gone right right so just a quick question from me uh, about timing this is probably out there somewhere but is there anybody who thinks they know like well this is probably when these guys showed up i mean I know we're talking about burn times. Mm-hmm. I know we're talking about we're talking about working backwards on timelines in that way. Is there any sense at all of like this is when they could have arrived 
it's so hard to know. Uh, you know, you, you're yeah. going to hear through three hours of conversation with Jim. We really go back and forth a lot about who the actual target was. If Becky was the actual target, then the idea of like a hike or something and mom and, and John are still in the house, you know, it could be hours. If Vicky's the target, it looks to me, and Zach and I were talking about this before we came on the air. The crime scene looks to me like the attack on John and Vicky happened quickly. Like two people came in the back door. They grabbed Vicky, put a gun to her head. The other one has the shotgun. John's in the kitchen. Boom. They shoot John. He's down. They shoot him twice and then shoot Vicky. And it happens very quickly. So they would, they wouldn't have been there very long. If Becky was the target and they were killed as kind of collateral damage, then, you know, they could have been there for an hour before that before they decided mm-hmm. to go inside and and take care of the of the two witnesses which I still don't lean that way because it's just it, the 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 attack on John and Vicky is too cold it's too fast it's too you know for for somebody who just accidentally killed someone like oh well now we got to kill these witnesses I just don't see that uh, personally but that's just my personal opinion on it yeah um, quick question from Corvega in the chat. It's assumed the shooters fled into the desert. Are there hiking trails out there? If they did flee, we do know that there are some, right? I mean, that's yeah near the, the, near the backyard. And- yeah, there are some hiking trails back there, um, way back. So it's kind of just like just wilderness area. And then you get to uh, some tra- some trails that are, you know, like a half mile back into the bush back there. Um there's, there's no indication that they, it looks like they only looked for footprints along the wheelbarrow track. They scanned the area looking for the like grid patterns, looking for the shoe or any evidence all over the back. Um, but they, they were looking for footprints specifically where, so because so, people have said, well, somebody left on foot, where are the footprints? Well, I don't know that they looked for, and the same thing's true between the area between the back door and where Becky's body was found. Like we don't have any indications, nowhere noted that they looked closely at that area for footprints or for blood or for anything like that. That's baffling to me. Yeah, I, I think they just got locked, and they could be right. Who knows? But they, they, I think they got locked into their tracks leading to the wheelbarrow. So that's where our crime scene's at, and that's where they focused. And it hadn't occurred to them, even though I think that the person that made it was Ramirez or Eichler that made the crime scene diagram. I think he suspected that. That the the attack started in the house, because if you look at the way he drew the diagram and he measured how far Becky's body was from the house, he didn't go to the closest point of the house. He didn't go up to the front of the garage. He measured directly from the back door to where Mm. she's at, at a weird angle all the way over there. That's so tantalizing to then not have any follow up on that path between those two. Right. And no photos of no good photos at all anywhere of the ground there between the two. I do want to point out, too, and you're going to hear it. I don't remember which segment of the conversation with Jim this comes up in, but I was told that back behind the house, back behind that wilderness area, that there's a trail back there, like a dirt road that actually winds through the mountains and goes all the way back into Cathedral City down in the valley. And so that's something that I next time I'm, I go back to Southern California to do any work on the case, we want to you know rent a Jeep. And try and, and see if it's passable, if it's drivable. It's one of those things, it's kind of like the urban legend that there's this road back there that you can drive all the way to the valley and back through that, mm. that back road. 
Uh, but we don't know if it's actually a road, if it's passable. So we're going to go check that out. That's really interesting. I'll see you there. Emily asks, is there conclusive evidence that John and Vicky, Vicky were absolutely on the first floor, sort of talking about this idea of a little bit of a blitz attack mm-hmm. or them coming straight in and they're there? So she just wants to clarify, are, is there any remaining possibility they were in rooms on the second floor and the, the collapse ha- happened and they landed where they were where they were found? Just wondering about that. That's a great question. And I've wondered that myself. I don't, so. We don't have good photos of that either. The arson investigator, DeHart, said that's where the bodies were found. But I don't know if he just meant that's in the rubble. If I was personally digging the fire, the fire, I would be very careful to excavate that area. And what you'd be looking for is, is there anything between their bodies and the floor? And I don't I don't know. So so it, it I have to say, even so one side you can just default to... What the arson investigator said, which is that they were found there in the kitchen in the back door. But the other hand, without having conclusive evidence that there, because you would see it, like you would literally, when you would in a fire, we call it digging. When you're digging a fire like that, when you pulled their bodies off the floor, like I say, it was a linoleum floor. There's be black char and stuff everywhere. And then when you pull their body out, you'd find, oh, there's like, there's the linoleum underneath their body. It's like, because they went down. The fire didn't have air to breathe between their body and the floor. No rubble could get, be, you know, and the fire could get between their bodies and the floor. So they should be laying directly on the floor. Uh, and if there's rubble between them and the floor, it would be an indicator that they probably started upstairs and came down. So I think that's still a possibility that we have to hmm. at least think about. And I'm going to try to look through more photos. I've been trying to find any, I haven't seen anything so far that really shows. We see the excavation of the bodies, but it's like, Here's a picture of the body, and you can barely make it out in the rubble. They dig it away, and then the next photo is them putting the body on a body bag. And there's no photo of the area they took them out of after their body was out, which is what I would be looking yeah. for. Because if they are if they were upstairs, then that, you know, I had mentioned in the fire episode that it's possible there was a third ignition point set upstairs with that upstairs window open. It's possible that that fire was lit upstairs and they just burned the, as the house burned, they collapsed down into the main floor. So I, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't have the answer. Is it possible that they would have been planning to use accelerant on John and Vicky, but be, this whole idea of them being interrupted by phone calls or headlights or anything like that, that they had planned to do more accelerant than they actually did in the fire? It's possible, but behaviorally, I would expect if you're looking at somebody who's panicking and they're just trying to cover it up. There would be more. Well, what you would expect is, what I would expect is that the first place they would put the accelerant would be on the bodies, you know, because that's, so that's the thing that's first in your mind. I'm burning this down because I'm worried about the police finding these bodies, but that it's the first thing on your mind. You'd have to be pretty cool, calm, cool, and calculated to be like, well, I'll do that last. I'm going to start here and work my way down. Yeah, that totally makes sense. We're kind of all over the place because there's so much great stuff happening live in the YouTube chat. Montana just uh, speculates, you know, would Becky have gone hiking by herself? Could she have gone on her planned hike after being canceled on? Maybe she decided that she would go alone. Yeah, a lot of that's all speculation. It's it's possible. It's possible there was another guy that she went with. It's po- still possible that yeah. Robert showed up and went hiking with her. We just don't. We don't know. We don't have any conclusive evidence one way or the other. And and while we're on the YouTube chat, did you see Yuli put in there that according to Google Maps? Palm Canyon Drive going north turns into Dunn Road, which goes all the way to Cathedral City. So that is the that back road that we were talking about. Yuli, well done. 
Oh, yeah. Can't wait to dig into that more. Jackie, just going back to money and, and what Ron owed Vicky, refreshing this, did the money Ron owed Vicky have to go to her next of kin? My understanding is no. Um, I'm not super familiar with California law and how that works, but I've had a few people write in who are, and it sounds like, no, that that is, it's a divorce settlement between him and her. And usually from what I'm told, it's usually written in there that says, you know, that, that has like in the event of her death that it wouldn't be paid or as you know, or it'll say like this money is owed to her as long as she's still alive when he retires. So there's there's not usually where the, then it would pass on to Mexican or anything. Understood. Quick shout out to Dean who asked a interesting question about birdshot and criminal sophistication. I do feel like we've answered that even just in the conversation about your experiment, but mm-hmm. wanted to give him a shout out. Moving on to a few more Becky items. Debbie asks, can a time of death estimate be made on Becky's body based on lucidity, rigor mortis, etc. of the unburned portions? No, she was she was moved too fast. So, you know, lividity takes anywhere from six to 12 hours to set in. Rigor mortis starts, you know, four or six hours. Her body was moved out of the wheelbarrow too quickly for any of that to have set in. You know, those are really good. Like, lividity is a great indicator if a body has been moved. If you find a body that's been somewhere for a couple days or, you know, 12 to 24 hours, you can judge the amount of lividity. You can see if, say, you know, like in the Heyman Lee case, you know, that, that she has fixed frontal lividity, but she's found in a grave on her side. That means she had to have been laid flat long enough for the, you know, in a prone position long enough for the lividity to fix before she was then put on her side. In this case, Becky was moved too soon for any of that. And then also the fire does damage to the ligaments and the muscles and all that, like with the hands, which would create a rigor type situation, even though there's not actual rigor mortis. It's so frustrating Got with it. Becky's like cause of death or lack thereof. I'm yeah. not saying it's the Emmy's fault, but it's just it's really frustrating that there's just nothing. They just say it's homicide, but they go through everything. The, the hyoid seems to be intact, or at least they didn't mention it if it was broken, mm-hmm. which kind of results in no strangulation. There's no holes, which they've seen. I mean, obviously, right. looking at the photos, there's obviously portions missing, but there's mm-hmm. no holes that we've seen. A lot of the internal organs seem to be fine or unremarkable, as they put it. Right. So it's just frustrating to figure out, like, well, what happened? then? Like, how did she go down? What happened? Yeah. Do you mind if I add Kylie's question to that, Zach? Because that's a it. great um, jumping off point for some further theories and questions. Kylie says, could strangulation still be a potential cause of death for Becky? After hearing statistics on another podcast, I researched fatal strangulations and was surprised to learn that hyoid, hyoid fractures are only found in a minority of strangulation victims a third and even less in young victims. Other signs of strangulation, such as petechiae, bruising, defensive wounds would have been concealed by the fire in this case. Wondering if I'm missing something and would love your thoughts. Yeah, it's tough because you don't always rupture the hyoid bone. What we what we have, the no broken hyoid, we have the trachea and the esophagus are unremarkable. So there's no signs of damage there. So you would see some bruising um, and particularly the trachea. If there was, you know, strangulation, you know, strong enough to kill, to cut off someone's airway and kill them, I think. Uh, but like bruising there, you know, her neck was charred pretty bad, but there was some, you know, I, I don't know how thorough of an autopsy they did because there's, for those of you that looked on the website for the case documents, the autopsy is like two pages long. You know, there's, there's not a lot there. And even in the photos, there's not a whole lot of autopsy photos. So it's, it's, 
it, it's hard to it's hard to know if for sure if she wasn't strangled. All we can say is that from the evidence we have, there's no indication that she was that she was strangled. Um, doesn't really talk much about the eyes or you know because they were they were obviously were burned, but you know the head was kind of out. They wasn't burned as badly as like the main part of her body. There's there's enough charred flesh, but flesh left that I think they would have been able to find out if there was any kind of trauma to the neck or throat region, and there wasn't any from what they could find. Got it. Yuli uh, said I, this was a pre-planned question, and then Jim just mentioned it in the chat. Since Becky's head, neck, and heart were intact, what type of injury would cause a fairly quick death without major blood loss? I can only think of suffocation, like with a bag over her head. And Jim echoed that, saying, "Could she have been suffocated?" That's possible, but I think that I think a, I think a gunshot wound or a knife wound is probably more likely. It wouldn't. It's it's not like on TV. It's not like you shoot somebody and there's blood everywhere. You know, anybody that's hunted and it's like tracked an animal after you, shoot, you know, you're looking for tiny drops of blood and that's that's for like an animal that's not wearing clothing obviously you know you're you're on your hands and knees on leaves looking for drops of blood along the way so there would be maybe some spatter of of an exit wound but she's wearing clothing you know the clothes would catch any seeping blood there it wouldn't necessarily be a big bloody scene but there should be something right so if there's like especially if it was if it happened way out in the desert the area of disturbance as they're calling it you know, you've got hard packed ground with a little bit of sand on top and it's very light colored. And if she was left there long enough to get a wheelbarrow while she was bleeding, then I would expect there would be quite a bit of blood then. But if say she's running out of the house and on her way out the back door, she gets shot and goes down and then they grab her body and throw it in a wheelbarrow before it has time to lay there and bleed too much. There may be some spots of blood on that pathway they could get trampled even by the firefighter doing the 360 or just by firefighting crews moving around the area and maybe wouldn't have gotten seen there. Well, and I thought about if she was shot in the house and ran. Also possible because that's a good point because everybody thinks it's like on TV, you get shot and you drop and die, but that's not necessarily the case, especially if she was shot through the abdomen, like like through like a liver shot or or just clipped one lung, you know, you, you can live for quite a little while before you actually die, certainly long enough to run. Yeah, I'm really glad that you uh, that you clarified that. Those that's great, great point, Zach, and nice to know because I know obviously there are a lot of questions about if she was shot, where would the bullet be? You know, there's still a question of how how would that end up burning up? Wouldn't it still have been found? And then you did say in the autopsy episode, you feel that the answer could be hidden between those two places, the back door and the wheelbarrow. Right. So it's really good to have that clarification that, again, it would just need to potentially be a few drops of blood. I think a lot of people really are imagining this huge blood trail that would have been missed between those two places right. and that it wouldn't be that is really good to keep in and, mind. And as far as the bullet, if she was shot with, say, the forty caliber handgun, um, not so much the shotgun, the shotgun would leave BBs inside that would be x-rayed. But if she was shot with a forty caliber handgun and it was you know through soft flesh like the abdomen or through the back, the bullet almost certainly would pass completely through and would end up you know far away it wouldn't be it wouldn't be easily found it, as we talked about it was kind of a rarity that the shot to Vicky's head didn't exit the other side uh, but that's through two layers of skull which is pretty thick bone if you shoot somebody through the through the chest cavity usually it's a through and through got it with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pamela says if uh, this is just another um, kind of timing on the fire. Can't remember if Becky's body was extinguished prior to the chief or sergeant or whoever was doing the 360 walk around. How long would that take? Just wondering if that's enough added time to factor in how long the fire in the wheelbarrow was burning. Yeah. So he reported on scene at 1012. And recalled into dispatch and said that he saw the burning body at 1014, um, which is about right. I think I'd said they typically a 360 should take less than a minute. It's a very quick, make sure there are no unseen hazards around the back. Make sure there are no victims, like savable victims around the back. You just want to make sure you have a full view of the scene. It's a very quick walk around. Um, and we, like at our protocol in my fire department, we had to, we had to say it on the radio. We'd get on scene and say, I've got a two story working structure fire. 4101 has command. We're doing a 360. We had to, we had to, we had to vocalize that we were doing it and it'd be like one minute, just quick walk around. So within two minutes of being on scene, he found the body. And then he said this first order was to extinguish the body depending on, you know, there's, there's a bit of a process there. You've got to pull the hose off the truck. Typically, like hose lines on truck, this is some they're heavy, like an inch and three quarter attack line usually is stored in 150 or 200 foot sections. So you got to pull that off that's folded up on the truck and then spread it out so that when you charge it with water, it doesn't turn out like spaghetti and knots. So depending, like if, if they hadn't pulled hose yet, then that might take a minute to get that that going and then extinguish the fire. Typically, though, the, you know, with, with an experienced crew, while, you know, you know you're going to be fighting this fire as the captain is, is doing the walk around, typically your, your firefighters will already be pulling hose, getting it ready. But I would say if, if he announced the body that he found it at 1014 and he said his first order was to extinguish it, I would say, and I think I, I built that into my timing, was by 1016. Her body, that fire was out. Could be ten fifteen. We're talking about a matter of minutes there, but uh, it's going to be real close to that. Okay, let's get into a little bit more Jim Clementi specific material. Kind of a lighthearted question from Lauren to start: How big was Jim's eye roll when he heard they didn't take the wheelbarrow into evidence? A lot of times when I wish that you guys had video instead of just audio, because I was trying to carefully go through the evidence, and Jim's reaction to that was it was. A throwing up of the hands, eye roll. It was a pretty big eye roll uh, at that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Some questions about what information Jim had to review, to read prior to the conversation uh, here in the YouTube chat. Chris asks, kind of circling back on the victimology idea, it didn't sound like you guys necessarily started on victimology for your conversation you want to kind of talk about the overview of of Jim and the beginning of the conversation, what he had to look look at, etc. Yeah. So when I do these cases with Jim, I give him um, a case summary, and in this particular case, it was about a twenty three page document that I created, and it starts off with the overview of the like so maps of the area, important locations, aerial shots of everything, and then some basic shots of of how the scene looked. You know, that the, the diagram of the house, what it looked like before it burned. 
the layout, uh, the diagram where the shows where the bodies were at and all that, and the cars were located. And the next thing is victimology. And we had, you know, anywhere from three quarters of a page to two pages of victimology for each of the three victims that we laid out and then broke down um, details of the crime scene along with photos, different items of evidence, photos of the footprints, photos of the tracks. And, and then some a, a little bit of, you know, like my thoughts on the fire itself and where the accelerant was and what, and what my thoughts were on that. He, what he gets is no, no information whatsoever about any suspects. I don't mention it, which is a little tricky with Becky because part of her victimology is that, you know, you want to know what they were doing that day. So it, it's, you know, when I'm writing that, I'm like, well, she had the ex-boyfriend that they broke up with, with at this point. Uh, you know, back in January, he has a new girlfriend. She broke up with a new boyfriend, was talking to him and planned to hike with him that day, but he says he didn't go. So he knew that. Uh, and then I usually send another file with a shit ton of crime scene photos and autopsy photos for him to look through also to try to verify any of that. And then we have texting conversations back and forth for a couple of days before we actually recorded the record, the interview of he's like, you know, what is this photo? And you know, where's this at? And things like that. So He's got quite a bit of information going into, I try, I try to give him everything that he would have if he was there at the time, you know, photos of, of everything that we have, um, pictures of, uh, I did, so I don't think I included it in the questions, but somebody did ask when that interview was recorded. If it was before or after I did my profile it was after mm -hmm. I did mine before I left for my assignment last week and was gone. And then I recorded with Jim, uh, the day after I got back. So it was it was just last Thursday is when we, we sat down and did our interview. Got it. Well, as we said earlier, there are a lot of questions about this part of the conversation that you've had so far with Jim with respect to criminal sophistication, because obviously you guys maybe started out differing a little bit on what that looked like. Um, so that raised a lot of questions from people. Caitlin was the person that asked when you had done your profile and when you had your conversation with Jim, she said has that preliminary preliminary profile changed at all? Janaya asks as well, the sort of criminally sophisticated versus criminally unsophisticated. And Kelly also asked the question about sophistication. Janaya, and I hope I'm saying your right, uh, your beautiful name right, Janaya, but um, she kind of hones in on the use of accelerant in single spots could be a sign of someone who is experienced with outdoors or lighting fires maybe grew up on a more rural property. And Hannah, I noticed way earlier in the YouTube chat, also said something similar about, you know, could you be criminally sophisticated with fire and criminally unsophisticated with murder? Um, I know that's a lot, but it's sort of all in the same package. Wanted to throw it all at you. There, to be honest with you, this is the this this is the most Jim and I have ever really disagreed. And it's not even really a disagreement on a, on a case, as you'll hear as the, you know, as the hours go by in these next two episodes. The divide comes in in the fact that this is such a complex crime scene. So typically, we're able to look at a crime scene and say, this is what happened. You know, one of the first steps we do is a crime scene reconstruction, which you were kind of hearing us trying to talk through, is in order to figure out behaviors, you need to know what happened. This scene is so complex that it's really difficult to know what happened and therefore our profiles are based on our own hypotheses of what went down and and you'll hear us break this down more as the scenes go along as far as like the criminal sophistication of the of the fire maybe they just know a lot about fire that that certainly is possible but for me it comes down to I'm it's more about 
the mindset. So what I'm looking for is panic. Someone who has never killed anybody before, who has not does not have history with the law, that is not forensically sophisticated, and just murdered three people. I'm looking for indications of panic. Just quick, throw gas all over the place, light it on fire. And when, instead, what I see is someone who is, in my opinion, very pretty calm, pretty thorough, calm, cool, collected. Okay, if we set fires here, here, and here, we can light the light the fires. It'll be small enough. We'll have time to escape before anybody sees it. But it'll still burn enough that it'll do what we want it to do, which is cover up the evidence in the house, maybe even mask the fact that there is a crime committed at all. Jim and I agree there was, you know, something interrupted them. Uh, but 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 our where we where we where we kind of split is, and both of us can see. You'll hear in the conversation we can see the other point of view for sure. Is what interrupted, and who was the initial target, and. If I'm looking at a scene where Vicky was the target, John was killed and was was intended to be killed because they knew he would be there, and Becky was the interruption, if that's the case, then I see a very criminally sophisticated scene. And one thing that's very hard to argue with is we can talk about how unsophisticated any forensic countermeasures were, but the reality is... This case went unsolved for 10 years. And then when it was finally, air quote, solved, it was a completely circumstantial case that did it. So the forensic countermeasures worked. They did work. But, but so that, that's where the – and, and I don't want to get too far ahead because you're going to hear Jim and I break it, break it down more. But that's, that's why we are so – because remember, Jim trained me to do this. So you would think that we would end up in the same place. But we don't – but he's very you – know, You'll hear him say the term, this is a bifurcated case, because if you're looking at Vicky as being the target and Becky being the interruption, well, then you're looking at X type of person. But if you're looking at Becky being the target and John and and Vicky being killed as witnesses and collateral damage, you're looking for a completely different type of person. And so, and, and really where we're at is, I think I lean more towards Vicky being the or Becky being the interruption, and he's leaning more towards Becky possibly being the target. But as you'll hear him acknowledge, he still thinks it could go either way. But that's why we have that's why it's so kind of convoluted between the two of us is because we don't have a solid crime scene reconstruction. So therefore, we don't know what the actual behaviors were that we're analyzing. So it's a it's normally it's. We have known behaviors, and here's our theory and an analysis. In this case, we have a theory about the behaviors and then a theory about the analysis of those behaviors later. So it it just leaves a lot more room for for error in there. Well, if you think about it as sort of being split down the middle and no one really knowing what to do, then a crumpled up business card starts to feel real important to somebody who's trying to solve the case. Exactly. Right? Yep. So... Teresa says if Jim's thought of the unsubs being interrupted as it relates to finishing their task with Becky means they were potentially still there, could this mean they were at least partly on foot? The Summerleys and other neighbors started to arrive, saw no cars parked there, leaving the scene. I think we talked about that a little bit in our last follow-up. Yeah. One thing that Jim and I, you'll, you'll hear, I don't remember where it's at in the interview, but we both agree on is that the killers were on foot. Either, you know, we we're, we're both feel very strongly about that, that either they were completely on foot, like they lived 
near the neighborhood. They were able to escape into a place to hide in the neighborhood, or they parked a vehicle in a remote location and walked in, committed the crime, and left. There's no indication whatsoever that they left in a car. And when and and that's why the the timing of the burn time of Becky is so critically important. Because if you take from the time the first person sees fire and calls 911 to the time that Tim Summerlee gets there till she's ignited, like now we know as we're piecing these things together that people were awake and alert and were watching that house before the killers left. We think we can say that with almost certainty that that was happening. Uh, from a distance. Mm-hmm. Now, now I think the killers were probably gone when Tim got there. There's a possibility they weren't if they snuck out the back. But you know that fire was started. The fire on Becky was started within minutes of Tim's arrival, and there were 911 calls that came in before or calls into the fire department before that. So when you have all those people on alert that are watching the house, why the killers are still there, and no one sees a car leave. It's it, it's almost certain that the that these killers were on foot. So it sounds to me like you are kind of honing in more on Becky being burned second, right? Because you because if there's if if her body was set on fire within minutes of Tim's arrival and other people saw the fire, they couldn't have seen her. Right. Right. They must have seen the house. Yeah. My- so that takes us back to the house is first. Becky said exactly my my so gone back and forth. when I did the fire episode I I hypothesized that I thought maybe Becky was lit first and then the house primarily that was because of the fact that there's no accelerant there's no gas can by her body so they they carried the gas can either away with them or back to the house and put it into the garage that just seemed super unlikely to me it seemed like if she's if she's last you pour the gas on her light her on fire get the hell out of there but then if we're talking about someone who does have some criminal and forensic sophistication, then it makes sense that, okay, I'm going to take the risk of taking these extra, this extra 60 seconds to go take the gas can back or put it in the fire or wherever or take it with me. Uh, it makes sense that the gas can wasn't left around the body. But, yeah, because of the timing, when, and Jim and I get into this and I've worked, I've got charts and stuff I've worked out. And with the timing, I now I I think I was wrong there. I think that the house was lit first, and then the body. I think the the body had to have been because it couldn't have burned. Again, Zach and I looked at the photos from the from the multiple experiments that um, Doctor Pope did, and at thirty minutes, like you saw what thirty minutes looks like. Her body did not burn thirty minutes. No, the 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 thirty minute photo. I mean, the body was almost gone. Yeah, it it, and, and and it was a female on metal almost identical circumstances outdoors. So there's no way that she burned 30 minutes. So if you start cutting that time down to when she was extinguished, it had to have been like the last thing that happened. Yeah. I was reading the YouTube chat and there's a lot of uh, talk around this idea of a bifurcated set of theories and crime scene. Rena suggested, could there be an episode for each victim being considered to be the primary target and see if new ideas surface. And a couple of folks said, oh, that's really interesting. Maybe that would kind of shake something loose. Yeah, that, that is a good idea. I hadn't thought about that, but maybe we'll do something like that, like do an episode like crime scene reconstruction with three different theories. That's a great idea. So maybe and maybe I'll like touch into some of our social media and get some ideas from you guys so we can build out Love it. what a scenario looks like if John was the target 
or if Vicky was the target or if Becky was the target. Because that's that that's the problem I have. And, and again, you'll hear this throughout the conversation, but whenever I go back to Becky being killed out in the out in the desert, I can't and maybe it's just my brain. I cannot make sense of they're putting in a wheelbarrow. Like, first of all, that's just asinine to me. Like, why do that to begin with? Haul her back to the house. And then if it's like, well, you're going to throw her into the house so she'll burn with the other bodies. But then you get there and like Jim said, well, they got interrupted. They saw lights coming. They heard the sirens. So they they got interrupted. It's like, yeah, but so then they could either go the extra 70 yard, 70 feet you know, which is which is 21 steps they could take downhill in the wheelbarrow and dump the body and get out of there. Or they could park the wheelbarrow, walk up to the garage, get a gas can, walk back, put the gas on her, light her on fire, walk back and put the gas can away. Or obviously there's different scenarios there. But I was like, I was like yeah. to me, again, if that's the case, I'm looking for panic. Like, oh, shit, someone's coming. What I would expect someone to do is complete the task they were already doing quicker. Like, oh, hurry up, run, run up to the house with the wheelbarrow, dump her in there. Let's get out of here. Not Parker there. Like, I just, I have a hard time. The only thing that's making sense in my mind is Becky escaping from the back door and being killed and put in a wheelbarrow. And the fact that it has a wheel on it is just really throwing us for a loop in this crime scene. Well, you know, I think listeners should do what they do best, which is sort of try to unstick Bob from this idea, right? right. Is there can someone come up with a reason that is going to sort of unstick this this problem that is a very big problem when we think about the scene? So that is a great idea. I love this idea of developing it out further and finding out what the sort of I don't want to say pros and cons, but what the what the issues are. What are the sticking points for each person being the primary victim and how right. do those stack up? against each other. Um, I just had one final thing that was sort of on my mind, which is, again, really having such a curiosity about whether we're going to find out if that phone call actually happened, Mm -hmm. Uh, knowing that you're having to sift through a bunch of other people's phone records and stuff. I'm just wondering if we're going to hear more from you about whether you feel like it's more or less likely that that call took place. Yeah. So we're we're going to be getting into that. So one of the reasons, first of all, just there, I mean, there's just some how the sausage is made stuff like we can't really make episodes more than an hour long um, was part of the reasons why we broke this up into three episodes because uh, it's a three hour conversation. But the other part of it was like, well, if I if I do that and we just use the same the same interview for for the next three weeks, what that does is gives me is giving me the time instead of writing an episode this week and next week for me to try to make sense of these cell records. So the intention is for me between now and when you hear part three of this is that I'm breaking down the call records. So the first thing I'm trying to do is just figure out, I have to identify whose numbers are whose, so I can put you know names to those, and then start tracking everybody's cell phone record or everybody's records together to see who called who when. And that is my intention to be the next episode after the final profile episode with, with Jim Clemente. Uh, and then I need to find, some of it I have a hard time even understanding, so I need to find a good cell phone expert that can help interpret some because there's some of them that like Susan Simpson. Yeah. Well, Susan had an expert that she used um, from. Interesting. You know, yeah. Yeah. She picked apart the, the, the facts document and the rules. Right. 
But as far as like what you need the like pings and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, for the location stuff. And then some of them, like they're all different carriers. So like some of them are like at this very clear. At this time they called this number. And then there's other ones that are like they just show like this time and then it has like some sort of heading and a phone number and then another heading and a different phone number. And I don't know what that means. Like, does that mean they mm. called and are received and why are there two different numbers or was it a forwarded call? Like, I don't know how to quite interpret that. So maybe you need multiple experts. Yeah, I need several that people who are experts <laughs> within the one network that they're experts. Yeah. On. And really, it's someone just to read the data and tell me what it means. And then and then there's a whole nother can of worms we're going to get into later on, which has to do with uh, the location data, which becomes critically important in this call. In this case. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I feel like we're well over an hour in. We had a lot to cover because we had those two episodes. Really, really great feedback from the listeners. Oh, my gosh. Really excited and interested to hear what the next third of your conversation with Jim is going to be. Zach, any final thoughts? You had so much amazing feedback this episode. I feel like I know so much more about some of the pieces of this crime than I did before. No, like I've said before, I think the biggest thing to this case is just figuring out who the intended target was. And once we can get there, we can move a lot further along. Yeah, that's that's going to be obviously a huge piece of the puzzle. And I want to, again, thank you guys all for the feedback. And also, I'm going to be reaching out to some MEs that I know because um, Emmett, I think, was the one that came up with the idea of mm-hmm. the edema coming from a wound to the lung. That was a great, that was a great idea. And if that's, yes. that makes sense to me. If that's accurate, then I think that almost conclusively tells us that their cause of death was from either a gunshot or a knife wound to the lung, which is which is huge. That was a, that was a great catch. Wow, that's huge. Um, that's why we do this. That's why we great involve work. all of you guys. And that's right. with all that, Zach, as always, thanks for being here. And uh, Janet, you're going to London today, so we'll be talking to I you from am. across the pond next week. That's true. Next week, there I'll be. I'm sure I'll have a beautiful accent. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's, you like Madonna. You'll be there for a week, and you'll have a <laughs> right. you'll have a new accent. Uh, right. And all of That's you right. uh, London listeners, you know, just get Janet on social media and guilt her into meeting you at a bar somewhere with Idris Alba. That's right. I'm into it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And with that, uh, make sure you tune in Sunday for part two of my conversation with Jim Clemente, and we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks, everybody. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by me, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. 
Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. We are back from our little break. No, 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 no. Yes, 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 yes. What are we then? We're back from our assignment. Oh, God damn it. Sorry, Kelly. I'm joined by Bob and Vicky. God damn it. Vic? Oh, now I broke Bob and it's going to be a minute because when he gets laughing, it's real over. I'm fine. I'm fine. Janet, thank you for being so much cooler than Bob. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm so tired. Please end this for me. That was one of the best ones we ever did.